you have any questions or uh, anything that's unclear, don't be shy. Hi. Beautiful initiation of meditation before and the following talk. Uh, I have one thing in mind that is, uh, you're talking about practice more to make it, make things better or if that means anything, better or not better. But I wanted to know what is not a practice. If we are continuing to uh, cultivate the metta and acceptance. Mm-hmm. What would not be a practice? What is not practice? Like, what is the opposite of practice from this? <laughs> uh, well, there's different ways you could approach that. Um, essentially, the, the opposite of of not practicing meditation is living completely heedlessly, just following your impulses, uh, identifying with your possessions, your personality, your body, your job, your family, and saying, this is absolutely me and mine, and I'll uh, uh, say... I mean, in a way, you can't live completely heedlessly, even if you're well, uh, sort of a medically... Um, so uh, in need of psychiatric treatment, there's still elements of, of mindfulness and integration in, in the, even in the worst state. So uh, I would say you, as long as you're alive, you can't be completely heedless. <laughs> so uh, using the word practice is a shorthand for practicing Dhamma. And uh, it's uh, the effort to... Uh, use attitudes, actions, speech, ways of um, capacities that we have to bring about greater peace and ease uh, and harmony within ourselves and between us and other beings. The other way of looking at it, which is again kind of on our theme of, of um, self-view, is um, to, uh, to quote Tsukni uh, Rinpoche, uh, uh, he's a son of Tulku Urgyen and uh, a lama who teaches a Dzogchen meditation. He has this very nice phrase, undistracted non-meditation. Undistracted non-meditation. So that's, uh, I think, a very neat phrase. And uh, another, uh, a, uh, another meditation teacher who passed away quite a few years ago called Kema Ananda, who was a Canadian, he used the phrase, diligent effortlessness. So both of those are referring to ways that we uh, are working with the mind, but it's not we, it's not I, it's not a, there there isn't that sense of individual agency, if you understand. So uh, that undistracted non-meditation, it's interesting, uh, like ringing the bell at the end of the meditation, not just because we have an excuse to stretch our legs and uh, and to uh, say unwind uh, our, our body from an uncomfortable posture, but isn't it interesting how when the bell goes, there's a sense of ah, I don't have to do that thing anymore, even though that thing is supposed to be peace, <laughs> peaceful. The the me doing this is stressful. So undistracted non-meditation is, I think, I have no idea what the Tibetan would have been, would be, <laughs> but it's that uh, that habit we have of even making being peaceful into a thing I'm doing, and 
And it's that me doing this, uh, the mind creating uh, the uh, kind of a solid uh, people and objects out of what are in natural fluid processes. Because you can say there isn't really a person, there's a process of experiences that, that take shape and, uh, and our intentions and attitudes are a part of that. So uh, the um, learning to, and, and again, some of the themes I've been saying like uh, in the very first guided meditation, don't, uh, don't uh, say, adjust the posture in terms of, oh, I should sit up straight, or I'm too tense, I need to relax. If uh, I like to emphasize that right from the get-go, because if it's like, I need to sit up straight, or I've got to concentrate on my breath, I should be doing this, then you've got the I am, the, the self-view, is, is the, the context for the practice. I am practicing meditation. I'm on a retreat at Deer Park. <laughs> I'm doing something good with my life. You know. On a conventional level, that's true, we are at Deer Park. But the mind that takes that as an absolute reality, I'm doing the meditation. And so the reflections on self-view and working with that, those eye-making and mind-making habits it helps it to be possible to, for effort to be made and for direction to be given completely free of I and me and mine, free of self-view. And so that's why um, uh, I use that kind of languaging. And also that you know, the pointing out that our, our mind, our body, it's a self-adjusting system. Like the world is, is an organic self-adjusting system. It's a, a self-adjusting process. And uh, it doesn't need a managing director. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the streams that run off the, off the mountains. They don't have a committee that decides we'll go to the left of that rock <laughs> and then go right. It's just the water just flows according to the nature of water because of, of gravity and the shape of the hill and, and what water is flowing in that moment. It, the, and so our lives can be the same way. And the quality of awareness, that's the, the integrative principle. That's not an uh, integrating principle, that which holds, brings it together and, and uh, harmonizes the different aspects. So that uh, if the mind is fully awake, fully aware, then the system adjusts to a balanced form, mentally and physically. And there doesn't have to be any I or me or mine involved in that. So anyway, the other people who are new to meditation, if there's any questions, don't be shy. Any things that have... Because there's some people who've never meditated before today, so I'd like to make sure they're not completely like, what the heck have I wandered into? Yeah, so, <laughs> Continuing with this uh, question which the girl asked, uh, don't you think that the, the basic problem with the meditation is the practice of it? In the sense that you are attached with the effort. Do you think the effort is, actually you are not then meditating, you are doing the effort only. I think, uh, so, whenever we are conscious of that effort, or uh, then we are actually meditating on the effort itself, or we are, we are, we are meditating on the method itself. Method becomes meditation, and, med and non-method is actually meditation sometimes, I feel. <laughs> so this is the... Uh, query I have. Uh, well, 
this is really the issue I was talking about, that it's totally possible for effort to be applied with great strength, with no sense of self. Right effort is part of the Eightfold Path. So there has to be a way that making effort is completely peaceful, even though effort is being made. Similarly with right resolution, Samasankapa, the second of the Eightfold Path, there has to be a way that decisions can be made, a direction can be given, without there being I or me or mine involved. Otherwise they couldn't be part of the Eightfold Path. Every aspect of the Eightfold Path is peaceful and leads towards peace. And it's interesting the number of times people assume any kind of effort, any kind of doing, any kind of directionality is necessarily stressful or against Dharma or somehow that uh, any kind of doing is uh, intrinsically uh, uh, sort of departing from reality. But if you, if you, again, if you look at the Buddha's life, he, the, he did a lot of stuff. <laughs> he made a lot of decisions. He took a lot of initiative. He was incredibly creative in his teachings and, his, uh, and the, the situations he, he, uh, uh, he dealt with, the, the, the things he established. So if you are one of the new meditators, the breakdown of right effort, samavayama, is in four parts. So the first part is restraining the unwholesome from arising. So that there's the intention, uh, the effort to reckon, knowing what is unwholesome, and the intention to restrain it from arising. Uh, if, if unwholesome qualities have arisen, then the second element is to let go. To, if, uh, if there is an unwholesome state, to let it go. The third one is uh, if uh, <coughs> there is a, the um, right effort is being applied, then there's a conscious cultivation of wholesome qualities like kindness, concentration, compassion, wisdom, awareness, and so on. And then the fourth one, the last one, is uh, to whatever wholesomeness has arisen, to maintain that in being. So restraining, letting go, cultivating, maintaining. Those are the, the four aspects of, of, of right effort or, or attune, effort in, uh, in tune with reality. And again, we can, we can explore that during this week. But just like you can go for a walk, you can be going for a vigorous walk, and uh, in terms of attitude, you're not trying to get anywhere. You're completely relaxed within the action of walking. The body's still moving vigorously sort of down the path, uh, but there isn't a, a compulsion of me trying to get somewhere. There can be me trying to get somewhere, but there doesn't have to be. There, there can be a complete attitude of ease and stillness within, even as the body is moving with, with vigor. Um, and so I feel it's getting a sense for how effort can be made and, and particularly decisions, choices can be made free of self-view, uh, free of any kind of conceit it is an extraordinarily helpful skill to develop as human beings because that we relate to effort and work as, uh, oh, thank goodness, the bell's gone. Uh, now I can relax. Or, oh, thank goodness. Uh, Thank goodness it's Friday. Oh, I'm looking forward to the weekend. I'm looking forward to the holiday. I'm looking forward to the retreat. Then I can. I'm looking forward to my retirement. Then I can. 
that any kind of doing is taken as burdensome or intrusive upon peace. But there, if we shift the, the view and, and experiment with it, see, see if we can find perfect peace in the midst of activity, in the midst of doing. This kind of relates to what our friend was saying about engaged Buddhism, that uh, it, it's not that there's a, a disengaged Buddhism, <laughs> but uh, of not being uh, attuned to the time, the place, the situation. So I hope that gives some helpful pointers. Any other questions from the, the new folk? This will be the last one. Hello, John. So I remember reading that one of the signs of finding out if you are making more self is uh, there is a compulsive nature to it. I remember reading something about something along those lines by you. Uh, so if, say, due to, due to my nature of my work, I happen to be involved with something more critical in terms of time. Mm-hmm. And I happen to be obsessively thinking about it. <laughs> There's a sense of nagging sensation about it. Uh, is that creating more self, even if I'm not doing it for the, say, glory, pride, or whatever? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the kind of work that we... Um, we pick up, you know, there, sometimes there are deadlines, <laughs> you know, planes to catch too. And, um, so that uh, if, I, if I've understood your question correctly, that um, uh, sometimes our, our name is written very large on some project, <laughs> and the deadline, and it can be that, yes, we meet the deadline and everybody praises us, but, uh, but uh, that... Um, uh, doesn't have to be something that inflates our ego. It can be like this is, this is a success. Uh, we, there was hard work was done, a schedule was, was met, and here's the the sweet feeling of yeah, that really worked well. Uh, if we if, if that success is related to is with skillfulness, it's not turned into look at me, I really made it. They're, they're so impressed. Wow, you know, I really scored some points there. Then that's where the that kind of self-view is coming in and and setting the mind up for more dukkha because uh, then our success can be a cause for a lot of difficulty that if we're really inflated about it then you're, uh, maybe you find that your friends are going, oh, he thinks he's so special God, all he did was just came up with a bright idea it's like he's insufferable I can't bear the guy yeah, he was fine before he had won the big prize and, and I've known that happen I, when I was living in America for quite some time and a, a woman was telling me how she was part of a, a little writer's circle. She and a number of friends, half a dozen friends, would get together and write, write stories and then share their stories in their, their creative writing circle. And uh, they said, we had a great time. We were together like 10, 12 years and we would meet regularly and it was, it was so enjoyable. And then I got this book contract you know, I got this advance for for a novel. You know, a, a, a very substantial advance from a publisher, and now no one will talk to me. <laughs> they think I'm so kind of proud. I've kind of gone beyond our little writer's circle, and that uh, I, you know, they were so, we were such good friends, and my success has ruined it. <laughs> so, yeah, even if it's not what we're creating inside, sometimes people around us can can project onto us. Uh, so success can have um, sweet aspects and bitter aspects. Um, 
it's uh, just knowing this is the uh, effect of uh, I, I did this in a good way, I did my best, this is the result, full stop. What can I learn from this? Similarly, if you don't meet the deadline or you do meet the deadline and the, and the project's a total disaster, <laughs> what were you thinking of? This is hopeless, you've lost us a fortune. Uh, then that's a bitter taste. And then to, to say, okay, well, that didn't work. So uh, rather than, oh, my goodness, what do they think of me? I'm a total idiot. Everyone hates me. Uh, I'm a failure. Uh, and inflating that with ego to instead say, well, okay, that didn't work. Uh, so what, what can be learned from that? What, what is this teaching us? And so, in, again, in this way, nothing can go wrong. You, know, you do your best. You're, you're, you're making a, what decisions you can in a skillful way. And if it all goes pear-shaped and uh, turns out to be uh, a, a, a something that doesn't function well, then uh, sometimes the, uh, what we learn from those things can be extraordinarily helpful. One little ex- maybe just to finish with one little exercise uh, I often suggest to people with respect to success and failure is if you, uh, if you think back you know, 5, 10, 15 years, some, uh, something that that uh, you succeeded at, you won the prize, you got the position at the, the, the university, uh, you got the promotion, or you, won, uh, or you, you finally um, you know, got to move to the new house, and you thought, yes, great, I got the job, I got the money, I got the new house, I've, uh, I got the appointment, this is great. And then five, ten years later, you look back and think, I can't believe I was celebrating. That was... <laughs> That turned into such a monster. It was, I was so happy, and it seemed to be so so uh, filled with with um, with uh, with you know, I was so filled with that sense of success and everything going right. I, why didn't I give any thought to what it might turn into? So, uh, and similarly, if you look back five, ten, fifteen years, as something that was a complete disaster, you got ill, you had an injury, a relationship ended, you got fired from a job, your company collapsed, you. Um, you got thrown out of a, your teaching post and it all went wrong and it was bitter and painful, difficult. And you look back and you go, actually, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Again, I'm not reading anybody's minds, I don't, don't know your lives or your stories, but it's extraordinarily common that if we look back, the things that we would never have chosen end up being things that we learnt a huge amount from and have been turned out to be really beneficial. We don't deliberately fail or make things <laughs> painful, but uh, uh, if we consider things in that way, what does that say about our usual views of success and failure? And that uh, if we bear those kind of things in mind, then we can know this is a bitter taste, it's like this. This is a sweet taste, it's like this. And then the, um, any kind of I, me, my feelings that, that grow up around that, then you say, okay, it's just a few... Ego-centered feelings, that's natural, here they come, there they go. Very good, so let's uh, have a, uh, a break.